welcome and thank you for joining us on Disrupt TV. My name is Vala Afshar, Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. Send Ray, myself, and our distinguished guests your questions using hashtag Disrupt TV. It's my pleasure to introduce my co-host, Ray Wong. He's the founder and CEO of Constellation Research, best-selling author of Disrupting Digital Business, regular contributor to media outlets like ZDNet and Harvard Business Review, and in my humble opinion, one of the best futurists to follow on Twitter, at R-W-A-N-G-0. Welcome, Ray, to Disrupt TV. Hey, thanks a lot. I'm here with my awesome co-host, Bala Afshar. He is the chief uh, digital evangelist at Salesforce, but more importantly, author himself, one of the top followers on for CIOs and CMOs on Twitter, and more importantly, uh, all-around awesome guy for advice for what's happening in the future. Many people follow him in terms of trends, uh, but more importantly, we're not here about us. We're here about who's next, what's happening, what's going on in the marketplace, and this is episode number 124. Can you believe that? I can't believe it's 124. It's a privilege uh, for us to have Dr. Dilip Rao as our next guest. Uh, Dr. Rao is professor and author of Nothing Ventured, Everything Gained. Dr. Rao teaches high-performance entrepreneurship and venture financing at Florida International University, Stanford University, University of Minnesota, and most recently at Harvard University. Previously, Dr. Rao financed 450 ventures using equity debt and leases and managed five company turnarounds, five company turnarounds. Dr. Rao is an advisor on building big uh, businesses with finance smart strategies to grow venture, financial institutions, and Fortune 1000 corporations. He's also consulted on social entrepreneurship and organizations such as the U.S. Department of Health, Human uh, Services, and Community Development Corporations in low-income areas around the U.S., his latest book is about how to grow without capital based on finance smart secrets of America's best entrepreneurs. We're going to talk about that when the show starts. He's also a regular contributor to Forbes. You can follow Dr. Rao on Twitter at uentrepreneurs, E-N-T-R-E-P-R-E-N-E-U-R-S. Welcome, Dr. Rao, to Disrupt TV. Thank you. Uh, glad to be here. Hey, thanks for being on the show. You're calling live from uh, Minnesota. Um, you have been talking to one of these BDEs, right? Billion dollar entrepreneurs, hundred million dollar entrepreneurs, HMDEs. And that experience gave you something interesting. Um, your VC experience and those conversations said you can actually start a company and grow without a VC. Is that true? Well, that's what I found, which surprised me. I thought that the sun rose and set on VCs because I was one. And uh, when I quit, financing, I started interviewing these entrepreneurs and began to realize that the only ones who needed capital came to us. Many of these others basically grew with skills. And then I studied America's billion dollar entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think there are about 100, 120 of them. I have 85 in my database. And about 94% of them took off without venture capital. 76% uh, did never got venture capital. So basically there are two ways of building great businesses. And I think we need to hear about the second way, how the billion dollar entrepreneurs did it to build big businesses and not just the VC way. Did you start your research by profiling your students or was this some uh, thesis that was formulating uh, with you as you were funding 450 some odd uh, companies? Uh, it was sheer accident. 
I basically was inviting uh, some of these entrepreneurs who were billion dollar entrepreneurs to my classes and they were contributing money to the Carlson School and so I wanted to have them come to my class. And uh, one of them, Bob Kalin, who built Fastenal, and that was the best growing stock, even better than Apple, uh, between 85 and 2010. Uh, he would come to my class and he built a billion dollar business selling nuts and bolts. So I kept thinking there must be something more, a pattern, something. I kept asking him. The third year I asked him the same question. He said, you know, Dilip, you've been asking me the same question for three years. And uh, I didn't realize he remembered that. <laughs> and, uh, and that's when uh, he said, we didn't have uh, any patents. And I said, you didn't have venture capital, you didn't have patents, how do you build a two and a half million dollar business with $31,000? And his answer was, we had great people. And all of a sudden, there's, there's a proverb that some people attribute to some French guy, some to Arabs, but it's lions led by sheep uh, will lose to sheep led by a lion. And points <laughs> out the importance of the leader. Yep. And all of a sudden I said, what has this guy done? And so I started seeing who else in Minnesota has built billion dollar businesses and hundred million dollar businesses. Got the entire list, interviewed 28 of them, found out that 90% of them took off without venture capital. Then I looked around the country among billion dollar entrepreneurs, found out over 90% took off without venture capital. Now the interesting point, Ray, you're in Silicon Valley, Valley, you're there over 90% in Silicon Valley accepted venture capital after takeoff. Over 90% outside Silicon Valley never accepted it. So there is a huge, huge chasm between Silicon Valley and the rest of the world. But in the noise from Silicon Valley, that's drowned out. Everybody thinks the Silicon Valley method is the only one, and it isn't. That's and that's what my book shows. Wow, for the record, Bala is not in the aura and chaos of Silicon Valley. He's in Boston. Oh, okay. <laughs> a, place that, a place that works really hard to try to emulate uh, Silicon Valley. Okay. And not yes, make the same mistakes. And definitely not make the same mistakes. Well, this is interesting, right? So, so in some of that, the question really is, what are some of those top mistakes entrepreneurs are making um, that you've seen? Maybe, maybe taking VC money early is a mistake. Uh, well, first of all, 99.9% .9 of entrepreneurs will never get venture capital. I think that's the first thing they need to remember. Only the top 0.1% do. And 80% of those who get venture capital fail. That's wow. the other part to remember. So really the ones benefiting from VC are about 0.02% of America's entrepreneurs. This is the other interesting point. If you can delay venture capital, you get to keep two to five times the wealth that that venture creates, which means you, you are diluted less by the VCs and you get to stay on as CEO. Yeah. So from an entrepreneur's perspective, the first thing to remember is don't accept VC until they come to you. And like, like Jan Coombe of WhatsApp, they came to him and they banged on his door and they said, please take our money. Same thing with Mark Zuckerberg. That's why they're so filthy rich. So that's the first mistake they make. They think that they need VC to grow rather than realizing that that's the hype and the noise and that most billion dollar entrepreneurs grow and take off without venture capital. Second is they think the opportunity is so much better than the skills. Yeah. Most opportunities can be copied. 
If you look at Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, Mark Zuckerberg, all of these guys imitated. The first rule of becoming a billion dollar entrepreneur is not to worry about the opportunity, imitate somebody else and improve. So to me, innovation is really imitation and improvement. And that's the second mistake. The third mistake, and here, Ray, please don't get me wrong, because I'm also a futurist. My PhD was in forecasting technology in power generation. <laughs> but assuming that investors and futurists know how a venture can succeed, we can't, we don't. Nope. And uh, we can just make guesses, but entrepreneurs take us more seriously than I think they should. And the worst, I think, is giving control to VCs. Uh, from my perspective, entrepreneurs should keep control of their venture and get the skills in order to do it and get the skills to grow with the venture rather than giving it away. So <laughs> this is, it's amazing listening to you because I have to keep reminding myself that you invested in 450 companies as a VC <laughs> and now I'm betting your VC friends aren't inviting you to dinner. <laughs> uh, yeah, I've long since lost most of them. <laughs> <laughs> but well, I'm getting well, too old and cranky, so uh, <laughs> not a big deal. No, because you're myth-busting this, this, this perception that rise to unicorns is a function of VC relationships. And in fact, what your research shows, and the numbers are stunning in the 90 percentile, in that, in that uh, one, only 0.02, you know, are ever, uh, you know, uh, successful based on these relationships. So, so again, it's, it's a lottery ticket. So what advice do you give to startup founders when you realize that they're leaning too much into an exit strategy versus building a beautiful product and surrounding themselves with really smart, empathetic people? Well... I think the first thing that they need to understand is, uh, A, you, ra you raised the question of billion dollar unicorns. Uh, you want to create a billion dollar unicorn, uh, Vala? I can show you how. Ray, you want to create one? I can show you how. I wrote a, a blog on this for Forbes. Very simple. You can do it in one day. Start a venture with one billion shares that you can uh, uh, sell. Sell yourself 999,999,999 for $1. Sell one to me for $1. All of a sudden, you have a billion dollar unicorn. You have two bucks in the bank, but you have a billion dollar unicorn. To me, that's a stupid phrase that somehow has been so well publicized because, again, VCs like the publicity. But the second point, and that's what I'm going to speak in Palo Alto next week, is that actually what I'm saying is that it will benefit the VCs more by listening to what I'm doing. It might hurt their ego because all of a sudden people will say, well, you know, these guys can't see the future. But when you look at the fact that they fail 80% of the time, you have to assume that they can't see the future. Secondly, the top 50 VCs earn 66% of IPO profits. Mm -hmm. And even one of the VCs who invested in eBay has written that the top 20 VCs earn most of the money, the rest of them fail. So I think we need to go beyond the hype and just because somebody has a VC on their forehead doesn't mean we allocate to them the aura of genius. The reason why I'm saying we can do, they can do more is if we can train everybody to rise and get, give them the skill sets to build a big business, no, once you, they reach aha, aha is when anybody can see potential. You know, when you see actual potential, you don't have to do it by reading a business plan. And when they rise, you can then fund them. 
And that's what I'm trying to convince some universities, some, some areas. Let's fund everybody. I'm going online to do this. Let's yeah. see who rises. And those who rise, we fund them. And that's what I'm trying to incidentally <laughs> teach in Silicon Valley. So I forgot your question, but, uh, but basically... Uh, this is, uh, the question was uh, the danger of focusing too much on an exit strategy versus okay. building a beautiful product. Sure. Yeah. First is you start to focus on the short-term strategies. And when you do that, it's, uh, uh, I hope I'm not offending people in Iowa, hog farmers and so forth, but it's like putting lipstick on a pig. Uh, you know, people know that you're putting cosmetics and, and so smart buyers, and even when we used to buy it, we basically delayed the purchase to see if this is a short-term thing and all of a sudden the entrepreneurs get desperate and they start to reduce the price. Desperation is not a great strategy to raise money or to sell a venture. Yep. They don't make the key investments to keep growing. They keep thinking, oh, well, let's uh, wait until they buy and then we'll ask them what they want to do. No, I don't want to know, uh, be the one to decide. You tell me what the venture is. And success cannot be predicted that easily. The timing issue becomes very crucial. So, and you need to revision because the first strategy that people do is not always the best one. So you need to revision. So you have many reasons why they should stop focusing on the exit and basically say, how do I find a venture that grows? Once this get growth, people will come after them and say, I'll buy it from you. Just like Google. I don't know if you know the example of Google, but the Google boys, Brandon Page, tried to sell Google for a million. The best offer they got was 750,000. They decided to hell with this. Nope. Let, me, let us just build it. That's amazing. Somebody made the biggest mistake of their life. You alluded earlier that it wasn't uh, intellectual property. It wasn't uh, a specific type of innovation out there. Um, There's a big human component in actually making this work. What qualities and leadership teams should entrepreneurs think about and recruit for? Well, uh, again, I, when I hear the word team, I cringe a little primarily because it is also a VC construct. VCs like teams because they don't want to have one entrepreneur control the venture in case he gets hit by a truck. Uh, but, the, but many of the entrepreneurs I funded, I'm not, not funded, sorry, uh, I studied, and some I funded, were solo entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. They built the business, and then they recruited other people as they needed them. Right. They learned the skills in order to grow. And I think, so the team issue is a false construct. The second is what qualities do you need and skills do you need? That is a key question. Can they all be in one entrepreneur or can they get in the entrepreneur and assistance? Because you can't always get great assistance at the start. But what you need are A, when you start, I found that they had three skills in common when they started the venture. A, they had technical skills. If you look at Zuckerberg and Gates and uh, Jobs, they knew coding, they knew computers, or they knew how to put them together. Second, they knew sales and marketing, or if they didn't, one of them had it in the team. I mean, look at Zuckerberg's genius, going and selling Facebook to Harvard students, and he beat MySpace with hardly any money uh, because he knew how to sell and whom to sell to. Same with Jan Kuhn, had 200 million with about 250,000 in equity. The yeah. third is what I call finance smart skills. Hmm. 
they knew their financial statements. They knew how to control the venture. They knew cash flow. And this is basically what I'm trying to teach people. So in essence, one of the reasons we grew is because I learned early on that it's much easier to teach finance skills to entrepreneurs than to teach um, to entrepreneurs who could sell than sales skills to accountants. <laughs> it is extremely difficult to try to sell sales skills to accountants, but if you can sell, I can teach you the finance skills. It was that insight. So we started giving workshops. We worked with banks in order to find deals. And the banks paid me to put on the workshops. I must be the first guy in history where someone paid us in order to sell our services <laughs> because we would pick the people from the audience to, to fund. Uh, I can go on about the launch <laughs> skills, but these are the three startup skills. And then in launch, they had three others. Amazing. That's, you know, I mean, you know, no wonder it's hard to survive. Uh, I mean, to have technical skills, financial acumen, and ability to sell and market as a solo entrepreneur, you have to be a genius. And some of the three you mentioned as examples are, are, are you know, century <laughs> geniuses. Um, well, but that's why you don't have to have too many billion dollar entrepreneurs. Right, right. But you can pick smaller markets and learn those skills. But the key is, if you are stuck in a small business, you're stuck going nowhere, you might as well learn those skills in order to grow because nobody's going to fund you. Right. And thinking you're going to go to pitch contests and get fund funding is basically false advertising. Right. So, so Dr. Rao, this is an exceptional book. Obviously, it's myth-busting what most of us think about when we think about startups and the impact of VCs. What do you hope people will take away from reading your book? What do you, what do you hope will be the long-term outcome of, of the folks that, that hear you lecture, read your Forbes articles, and then ultimately your, your, your brilliant book? You mean short of me getting the Nobel Prize? <laughs> you, you, you've won numerous uh, awards as a, as a professor. I, I, we only have a 20-minute segment. I couldn't name all the awards. Yeah, okay. Nobel would be pretty cool. <laughs> or a Pulitzer or something. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but no, to bring peace to mankind. So that's... Uh, <laughs> but the... Well, what, what I'm hoping to do is basically point out the reality to entrepreneurs that most of them are never going to get venture capital, so they better learn the skills. And even to business schools, and it is so difficult to teach these people, even business schools who are teaching entrepreneurship, that they need to teach skills and not have pitch contests. Yeah. Uh, so that's a, uh, I hope to change that. And uh, if I can do a, make a small contribution to help move it in that direction, I'd love to do it. You're doing that, that's terrific. Wow, this is wonderful. We're here talking to Dr. Dalit Brow, professor at many places, Florida International, um, Stanford, Harvard, University of Minnesota, Carlson, and former VC and author, uh, currently of Nothing Ventured, Everything Gained. You can get it on Amazon. This is a must-read book for entrepreneurs trying to avoid the VC trap and uh, also to learn how to play the odds in their favor. So you can follow him at U Entrepreneurs, E-N-T-E-R-E-P-R-E-N-U-R-S on Twitter. Thank you so much for being on the show, Dr. Rao. Thank you. Yeah. And uh, if they want to go to my website, it's my name, DilipRao.com. All right. Thank you. All right. Massive myth busting talking about what's happening. It is a Friday here on Disrupt TV. Who do we have next? There's more myth busting coming here. <laughs> well, you know, uh, Dr. Rao talked about, uh, you know, the different skill sets and capabilities. And 
will maybe expand on this business chemistry and having the right personalities and skills to, to, to build uh, long-lasting businesses. Our next guest is Kim Chris Fort, author, managing director at Deloitte Greenhouse Experience Team. Kim's national managing director of the Deloitte Greenhouse Experience Team, which helps executives tackle tough business challenges through immersive, facilitated uh, lab experiences and client experience IP, such as business chemistry. As part of this role, Kim leads US uh, Deloitte Greenhouse permanent spaces designed to promote exploration and problem solving away from business as usual. Kim's the co-author of a new book, Business Chemistry, which we're gonna talk about, Practical Magic for Crafting Powerful Work Relationships. You can follow Kim on Twitter at C-H-R-I-S-T-F-O-R-T. Welcome, Kim, to the Shrub TV. Thanks for having me. Hey, thanks a lot for being on the show. We've got this awesome book. I love the color in the cover. It's like <laughs> my favorite thing, right? And your, your whole point here is really talking about cognitive diversity, putting it to work. So what is business chemistry and what do people need to know? So business chemistry is a new approach on a totally old idea. So actually building on what Dr. Rao was saying, right? The best ideas are often the ones that you're not creating out of the blue. It's taking a concept and making it better. As you guys probably know, the idea of personality differences and cognitive diversity, that is not new. In fact, the ancient Greeks started looking into this, the first that I know of it. But what we realized was that in the workplace, and especially in today's workplace, where you often have virtual teams, you may not be sitting side by side with somebody for years, day in and day out, you need to quickly figure out ways to better relate to one another. And it can be really awkward if you're not connecting with somebody to say, hey, Ray, would you mind just taking a personality test and I'll get back to you about how we can connect. You really want to be able to observe what they are doing and having reasonable hypothesis based off of that. And so business chemistry was our research and scientific approach trying to take those observable behaviors and translate them into patterns that you can then do something about. And Kim, why is it, you mentioned this is important, why is it so important today for companies to understand the, the chemistry makeup or the different personalities that, that shape the company? So each of these patterns of, of working style are very distinct and they relate to strengths that individuals have. And it was interesting to hear Dr. Rao talk about the, the sort of individual leader and contributor because many of them will have facets of all of these patterns. In fact, everybody is a mix of all four. But in general, most people are defined by one or perhaps two. And so for teams and companies, you really want to cultivate a combination of these patterns and pull in styles that are different than your own because the power of that diversity is much greater than the sum of the parts. And so there are in fact benefits of team. The benefits of team are going beyond just the knowledge and skills piece that we heard about earlier, but really looking at the way that people process information, the ways that they make decisions, the behavioral aspects of how they're able to work together. And essentially you're able to get better productivity, better creativity, better output by combining all of these things effectively. And by the way, if you have this diversity and you don't tap into it, it can actually create the opposite problem. You can have a lot of conflict, you can have a lot of chaos, and you end up spinning in circles rather than making that progress. 
No, that's a great, interesting point. And, and I think the other thing that I thought was interesting is the fact that you talk about how business chemistry is focused on interaction, not introspection. What do you mean by that? Yeah, so if you think about some of the well-known systems like Myers-Briggs, for instance, it can be really great as a tool for navel gazing and you kind of think, oh, what, am I, what am I all about and where do I get my energy? And, and that's valuable, but it's not that practical when I'm trying to figure out how to interact with somebody else. And so what we do with business chemistry is we flag certain behaviors that are tells, much like poker, they're tells for what somebody might prefer or the way they might process. And once you have those tells, you can develop a hypothesis for better ways to connect and interact. And sometimes that might mean flexing your own style. I'm gonna do something a little bit differently to, to connect with you more effectively. Or sometimes it may be, you know what? My way or the highway, I'm not flexing to you, but at least I know that you're not completely out of left field. You're not totally crazy. You just happen to be a driver and I happen to be a pioneer. That's okay. Do, do you think we can codify this uh, cataloging or, or assigning the different uh, uh, models or, or styles by leveraging machine learning or artificial intelligence whereby we look at the social or as Ray calls it, your personal brand is your digital footprint plus your digital exhaust um, and somehow get to a point where companies are using algorithms to define without serving, without really explicitly engaging an individual and with a fair degree of accuracy in terms of the type of style that they have. Absolutely, and it's actually something we're, we're playing with right now to experiment. The, uh, especially the use of language is a very powerful indicator of some of these behavioral things. And what, what's interesting about business chemistry is that it didn't start with a theory about styles. I didn't say, I think there are four styles and they should have four different colors, and now let's develop a test that shows me that. Instead, Wait, I took one of those in like boot camp. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly. What we did instead is we started with, yes, yes. <laughs> We started with uh, with data. We started with let's let's think about what we could see in a business setting that matters. How quickly do you make decisions? Do you take risk or not? What is your preference when it comes to numbers versus pictures? Those sorts of things. And we did a statistical model similar to what they use in genetics to identify patterns in population, and that's what yielded the types. So it's really helpful if you start going down this path of artificial intelligence and machine learning because the system itself is already data driven and so what you're doing is you're simply layering on other ways to flag those observations other than me just looking at you so whether that's things that you say things that you post you know there's a lot of interesting language processing software that we're looking into right now so i absolutely think that in the future you'll be able to get some intel through other sources. I also think that there should be artificial intelligence that adapts its own responses based on what it senses for you. So if, if I know based on my algorithm that you are a driver or a guardian, I'm gonna be very facts oriented with you. Whereas perhaps if you seem to be more inspired by stories or pictures and things, I know you're probably a pioneer or an integrator, I'm gonna serve up a of information for you. I know Ray is a pioneer and driver, but can you talk about the four uh, styles of business? <laughs> yes, yes, I, I was guessing that as well, Ray. So, um, so there are four styles. Like I said, everybody is a mix of the four, but you tend to have a major, a major pattern or two. Uh, the pioneer is all about possibility. That's blue sky thinking. Do not want to be constrained by details and uh, really willing to take a risk to experience those new things. The opposite end of the spectrum from the pioneer is the guardian. 
Guardians are all about stability. So they are meticulous, they are detail-oriented, and they like to mitigate risk. So they not only crave stability, but they want to impose it whenever possible. Then you have the driver, all about challenge, very analytical. They like to be challenged, but they also like to challenge. They're one of the patterns that actually feels closer through debate, which can really throw off people at the opposite end of the spectrum, the integrators, because integrators are all about connection and empathy and diplomacy and connecting not only people, but ideas as well. And so you can see just with those brief descriptions, you essentially have these natural spectrums and those can be very, very damaging if they're op oppositional forces, right? But if you are able to weave them together, they become very complementary, like puzzle pieces. And that's really the magic that we're trying to achieve with business chemistry, thus the title of the book. Makes a lot of sense. And, and as, as Vala was saying, it seems to be a lot of CEOs are pioneers versus drivers. Um, is that a typical pattern that, that comes out? And would a pioneer ever and a guardian ever connect or they're just polar opposites? Yeah, so, so two answers to that. With executives, it's fascinating because the average business population is actually distributed across the four. So you have approximately 25% of each. But if you look just at the C-suite, you see a skewing. So you still see all four patterns. That's very important. So all types can be C-suite positions. You see that. But you see more pioneers than, than you would expect. Wow. And you also see more drivers, particularly in larger organizations, that driver number tends to creep up a little bit. Now, in terms of the polar opposite question, yes, there are polar opposites. <laughs> and that is, that is the typical story I hear is, oh my gosh, you won't believe I gotta work with this guy and he's just like, I'm like, hmm, sounds like it's your opposite. So yes, it's the biggest problem, but it's also so powerful. In fact, if you look at, let's say like Mark Zuckerberg, Sheryl Sandberg, I think that's a great example of different strengths coming together in a really powerful way. My co-author is my exact opposite. She and I came together in a very unique way. And you actually see that in the book. We, we had a lot of back and forth about how much detail to include in the book versus in the appendix. You know, do we have pictures? Do we have graphs? And it was a very healthy tension, uh, I think, that yielded a better product, ultimately. That's awesome. Wow. So, Kim, I'm a CEO of a startup. Uh, I, I come to you and I come to the lab and I said, this is the industry I want to compete. This is the product set, hardware, software combination. Would you be able to look at the most successful companies in that space and then look at their chemistry uh, division and then advise me to say, okay, well, for your recruitment, you should have 15% pioneers and 25% drivers and 50%. Is there a way to use regression analysis to guide companies in terms of the exact mix that could yield optimal performance given historical data. Right, so the, the advice is more specific to the company than to the benchmarks, I think is the, is the way I would take the discussion because for, for a couple reasons. Sometimes you have the ability to choose whoever you wanna have on a team and, and, you know, and that's great, but especially with startups, oftentimes the things you're looking for are gonna be more in that knowledge and skills zone, and you may not have the luxury to select for business chemistry. Even more mature companies face a similar challenge. And so I think the, the better approach uh, for an executive asking those questions is to say, how can I make the most out of what I have? And what is my current mix? Do I have enough diversity? 
if I don't have diversity, can I maybe encourage that in other ways? So let's say that I, I don't have one of the patterns represented, but maybe somebody has it as a secondary. Can I design a management process where they can lean into that? So if I don't have enough guardian on my team, for instance, can I say, listen, I want you to, I want you to be our guardian here. Identify some of the risks we might be overlooking. You know, help us think through the steps that we might want to take to mitigate those. So you sort of engineer the lack. On the flip side, if you have the diversity, but maybe it's causing you problems, what then can you do to let every voice contribute so that you're actually getting the proper mix of the strengths? And so typically, we try to dial it in that way. It doesn't really matter what other people in the industry are doing because they probably have a different mix or a different set of dynamics. There's also a cultural factor here. And uh, I'm also, I, I grew up in Silicon Valley, so, so I am very aware that there is a cultural shift uh, and you tend to see, especially with the engineering background, a lot of the driver, the driver culture. And so sometimes you end up with a company that has naturally tilted in a direction from a personality standpoint, which is not necessarily representative of the entire company, but may reflect the skewing there. In that case, you have an added challenge, I think, because there's also a self-selection criteria, perhaps, at play where I am an integrator and therefore I don't want to work at your driver company because you're not making it welcoming to me. Right. So drivers attract drivers and no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, it's funny you say that because drivers actually are, remember, they're the ones who like to debate and challenge. So drivers can also have that sort of, <laughs> I'm, I'm the biggest, uh, you know, bull in the room and let's, uh, let's, let's compare exactly, let's compare muscles. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's often easiest to work with people who are like you. It, you know, it just, you just flow with it. And, and of course, you know, you're used to processing that way. And so they seem very smart because they look just like you, but that's not a sustainable position. You know, at some point having healthier dynamics and tension actually promotes a different way of thinking and a better outcome. No, that's awesome. So, sorry, go ahead, go ahead, Val. In the book, you know that 65% of CEOs uh, identify themselves as either drivers or, 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 or pioneers, or were identified drivers or pioneers. So you did a segmentation based on title, CEO. Based on your analysis, were you able to segment by age and gender in terms of, okay, when I look at the pioneer sub-segment, X percentage are, you know, men or women, and then whether through age, can you transition from one style to another as you gain wisdom? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, this stuff is, obviously, I love this topic. There are so many interesting things that are that are going on here, and, and some... Some we, we have an answer to, and some I need 10 more years to be able to tell you exactly what the effect is. With gender, it's fascinating. Executives are actually more defined by their business chemistry type than by their gender. So in other words, I as a woman would have more in common with you as a pioneer because we both share pioneer than I might have with another woman in the, in the sample size. So I think it's a fascinating lens on gender in the workplace. With the age, it's it's hard. We see a difference, and we see a difference by by level in the organization. So, uh, millennials, for instance, what would you guess millennials are of those four types? Uh, I would say drivers. I, I don't know. I don't know. Um, pioneer, maybe. Yeah, I mean, I guessed. I guess like pioneer. You know, they're sort of they're young, right? They're willing to try things and do things, but actually, they're much more guardian integrator. Yes, right? It's shocking. It's shocking. But, but here's the thing, you know, are they guardian because 
that's part of this generation. And as they continue on through their career, they're going to stay guardian or are they guardian because, you know, that's this point in life. And as they learn more and do more and try more, maybe they're going to shift to be more pioneer. The simple answer is, I don't, I don't know yet. Check back with me in 10 years, but, but it's a fascinating question. We're not going to wait 10 years to have We're going to wait 10 years. We're not waiting 10 years. Well, we can check in along the way. <laughs> Wow. So you also have the self-assessment test that you're doing right now. Are you using that to refine or tune um, how you categorize people as well? Yes, we we have a a very thorough assessment that we do in, in our greenhouse labs, and that's the basis for most of the research that's in the book. But we also have just available to the general public something called 20 questions, which is essentially the quick and dirty version, you know, give me a sense of am I this or am I that? Um, it's a really useful tool if you're about to have a meeting with somebody else. You'd be like, okay, let's put a quick refresher here. You know, what do I need to go in? Oh, I probably should have sent this person an agenda because they're a guardian. Or this is a driver, so I better have a very clear outcome for this meeting, and I better make sure that we hit it. So it just gives you a nice, a nice little quick refresher that, okay, I probably shouldn't just do whatever comes to me naturally. So advice to folks that, by the way, it should be anyone watching and we'll be promoting your book on social. Uh, we've read your book. We understand the importance of uh, business chemistry. What, what should be the next step? Um, how do we, do we schedule a meeting with our chief human resource officer and put a book in front of her? And I highly recommend that. Yes, it's an excellent <laughs> idea. Online courses, online courses. <laughs> online courses, yeah. Um, and we do have a music video, which you should definitely check out. It's my favorite project we have ever done. If you go to, uh, to YouTube, Business Chemistry Mashup, watch that video and play it all the time. <laughs> no, no cats were involved, no cats. <laughs> no cats were harmed in the making of that, but, uh, but some office furniture was seriously damaged. <laughs> Yeah, I think, I mean, in all seriousness, the the value of business chemistry that we've seen, because we started using this for ourselves originally. Deloitte Deloitte used it. We rolled it out globally. Then we started using it with clients. We have more than 300,000 people around the world who are using it now. And one of the things we hear again and again is simply starting to put this lens on things and use this language is so powerful. And so if you could talk about it with your team and start saying, you know, oh, you're a driver and you know I'm an integrator and here's the things that might be going on as a result of that it's really helpful and I like to think of business chemistry as a language you speak your own language but you can recognize when somebody else is speaking a language and and at least give them the benefit of the doubt and not just speak loudly and slowly in your own language right you can kind of be like all right I get it he's speaking Spanish and I'm speaking Italian and then if you're really good maybe you try speaking Italian or maybe you try speaking Spanish. And so that, you know, having that attitude, I think is the best next step. And then, as you said, absolutely buy the book, tell your chief human resources officer, I'm all for that. That's awesome. Oh no, this is great. This is great. We are, more, oh, go ahead. Are you, are you more mindful of the words and the language you use now that you're, you've written a book and I suspect that maybe as you meet new people, are you subconsciously or consciously trying to figure out their style? Oh my gosh, it's terrible. In fact, I get teased all the time. It's like, not everything is about business chemistry, but there is this one thing that is actually about business chemistry. No, and, and it's not just me. I mean, I think if, if you guys aren't careful, you're going to start doing it all the time too, because you notice it. You notice there are words that people use. Hmm. Uh, there, are, there are things that 
are very obvious. You know, the pioneer is the one who's going to be bouncing off the walls. You can hear them all the way down the hallway. You know, the guardian is the one who's going to be always on time. And you start, you start picking up on these little things and then you see it everywhere. Have you guys done those? Uh, there's the famous psychology uh, field, you know, the contrast studies where they have the black and white picture and it kind of looks like a bunch of abstract shapes. And then somebody says, that's a picture of a Dalmatian in the snow. And you're like, oh my God, and it pops out of the picture. That's what's gonna happen with business chemistry. You're like, you're looking at all these black and white things and all of a sudden you're like, oh my God, it's a Dalmatian. And then you can never unsee it. You will never be able to look at that again and not see a Dalmatian. That's awesome. Oh I actually God. think that it could help because both Ray and I had blind spots in terms of millennials <laughs> and category or style. And so I think it's, it sounds like an incredibly enlightening, enlightening book and I uh, look forward to it and I highly recommend everybody read the book. I might actually leave a copy for our CHRO because we're all about understanding the power of diversity at Salesforce. So I, I love it. I love it. Well, here we are. Kim Crisford, co-author of Business Chemistry, Practical Magic for Crafting Powerful Work Relationships and Pure Managing Director for the Deloitte Greenhouse Experience Team. You can follow her at on Twitter at Chris Ford, C-H-R-I-S-T-F-O-R-T. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks guys, great way to spend a Friday. You crushed Happy Friday. it, thank you so much, <laughs> thank you. Please come back, so, awesome. Wow, so we, we destroyed the whole concept of VCs. We're now talking about- <laughs> yeah. yeah, so VC is, VC myth completely destroyed. Recruiting and hiring and retaining completely destroyed. <laughs> So, Who else can destroy the news? What's going on now? What we always like to do is end the show with a pioneer and driver. <laughs> I don't know what I am. <laughs> so it's our privilege to have Ron Miller, who writes and covers enterprise software and technology for TechCrunch. Ron has been covering technology for more than 20 years. He's a contributing editor to eContent Magazine, and uh, he's an incredible follow on Twitter, at Ron underscore Miller, M-I-L-L-E-R. Welcome back, pioneer Ron Miller to Disrupt. Thank you. It's very nice to be back. Always good to chat with you guys. All right. Well, let's start with the news, right? We got right. mega mergers. We saw the yeah, we got that Adobe, big merger. Marketo, now Cloudera, Hortonworks. Why Cloudera, Hortonworks? What's going on there? I don't know. I mean, I imagine, you know, so if you look at the Hadoop market, you go back to the 2010 timeframe. I mean, it was super hot, right? Everything was all about Hadoop. We were just beginning to think about big data and Hadoop was a really good tool for processing that big data. The problem was that Hadoop was incredibly complex. You know, it's open source. Anybody can download it, but just because you can download it doesn't mean you can figure out what to do with it. And I think that it was how companies like Cloudera and Hortonworks and MapR and some other folks out there, you know, they, they, they came out to help companies simplify what was complex. And I mean, that, that, that's simplifying what they did, but what they did was they packaged it up and they made it so that an IT department could download Hadoop and install it and not have to like get down and dirty in the code as much. So super hot for a while. Um, Hortonworks went out first getting, uh, going public in 2014. Uh, Cloudera, after raising almost a billion dollars, including 740 million from Intel Capital, goes out in 2017. And along the way, the cloud companies, the infrastructure vendors, begin to take over a lot of what Hadoop was doing. And 
you know, it became easier for companies to actually go to the cloud vendors and say, you just do all this stuff for us, we'll give you the data, then, you know, like trying to figure out how to build a Hadoop cluster. And, mm -hmm. and I think that that ate into their business a lot. And what these companies, and this is my speculation, of course, looked at was, you know, look, we're not doing great individually. Maybe it's time for us to join forces. We're a little bit different. We come at this a little bit differently. If we join forces, instead of being two smallish companies, public companies, suddenly we're one, you know, fairly decent sized public company. Whether that bigger is better, because something, I mean, that still remains to be seen. But that, I think that was the thinking. Yeah, you wrote that uh, sometimes. Yeah, you wrote in an article that covering this topic that sometimes the best answer to a fragmented market is coming together. Right. Uh, you also referenced it. <laughs> you also referenced it. Yeah, Intel Capital with the seven hundred forty million uh, with Cloudera investment and HortonWorks with two hundred forty eight million. So combined, you've got over a billion or close to a billion dollars off. Well, they, yeah. What do you think of Dr. Rao's thesis that? You don't necessarily need to get to a successful uh, stage without, you know, with, with VC support. What, what are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, I've thought about this for a long time. And, you know, my, my, you know, over time, I was thinking, okay, you know, like if you go back to the 50s or 60s, if, you know, our parents or grandparents wanted to start a dry cleaner or a restaurant, they, maybe they went to a bank and got a loan, but they, they didn't go to like some firm and say, like, write out a check for a million dollars. I'm going to be the best restaurant dry cleaner you've ever seen, you know? They had to think or swim. You mean there wasn't a dry cleaner hackathon 50 years? <laughs> really, there wasn't, you know? You open the doors and people brought the clothes and they didn't, right? So, so there's, there's some good projects going on. I, I spoke at the Coin Laundry Association annual conference. Oh, all right. There you go. Of course you did, Ray. Of course you did. You really busted my thesis here, right? <laughs> but, but, uh, but, you know, the idea was that, you know, you, you open a business and you had to market the business and sell the business and make money on the business or your business closed. And that was really the way things worked. And then somewhere along the way with technology companies, we decided that, you know, you needed these millions and sometimes billions of dollars to, to, to build these companies. And, you know, I don't think it's black and white. I think that Dr. Rao has a, has a legitimate argument and that he's not wrong. But I don't think that it means that VCs aren't necessary either, necessarily. Um, you know, some companies need a lot of capital, you know, to, to become who they are. And, exp and expertise, and expertise. Right. And more than capital, a lot of these successful VCs are, are you know, are, are helping you shape your company from sales, marketing, support, products. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that that kind of what he glossed over a little bit is the value that the, the VCs bring beyond the dollars. Because a lot of these guys, they just have no idea what they're doing, right? right. Or they have one idea, like they're very technical and they have, and too often that's the skill. Like they're great engineers, but right. they know nothing about how to market it. And that's why a lot of these things fail because they create a decent product, but they don't bring it to market in the right way. Exactly find that, you know, product market fit that you talk about as you go from series A to series B and all of that. Um, so it's not, it's not like, okay, of course, some companies are going to say, okay, we're going to build a product. We're going to figure out how to sell the product and we're going to, you know, build a nice little business, maybe, right. you know, a $10 million business or a $50 million business. But I think to become, you know, a really huge business, 
you probably need some capital to help you. And if nothing else, just to build that sales marketing team that, you know, Benioff always talks about, if you want to be a successful SaaS company, build your sales team. And you can't Absolutely. get good salespeople without capital. Absolutely. Well, the networks, right? And you're right. I mean, the, the VCs do bring a lot of special skills. Their networks, their operators, they bring in their, they bring in clients to come visit them. You know, some people do their Silicon Valley tours through them. So something there. So right. hey, I wanted to talk about something that just seemed oxymoronic. Okay. Blackberry and quantum. What, what, what's going on there? <laughs> All right. Well, that was an interesting story and it just kind of caught my eye yesterday. Um, you know, so you guys, I'm sure you, you, you're a futurist. You know that the future is quantum computing and quantum computing, which doesn't Really, I mean, it's, it's a research project still for all intents and purposes, but when it comes along, and it will come along sometime in the next decade, we're going to have this tremendous computing power that we don't have right now. And some people fear that when that happens, that will break cryptography as we know it, because these powerful computers will be able to mathematically figure out the cryptograph, which are impossible to figure out now. It's, it's a theory. Sure. So, in, in theory, BlackBerry says they've come up with a solution that will somehow protect against that in the future proof of computing. We just got 128 qubit computing from Rigetti like last, last right. month. Right, right. I mean, I'm, 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 I'm skeptical too. But, you know, and, and when I talked to uh, my, my, my colleague, Zach Whitaker, who's our, who's our, you know, security expert, he said, he said, yes, this is possible, but we'll never know until we actually have a quantum computer. So we can't actually test this. And they kind of hedged their, you know, their language saying, this could protect you, you know? So it's an interesting, I mean, this is a little bit of marketing mix in here, obviously from John Chen, but you know, the, the idea is that somebody has to be thinking about this. And I think that legitimately we do need to be thinking about this because if the technologists are right and we can break encryption, then how do we secure our content and our stuff? So we have to figure out a way now before we create quantum computers to protect them. So the fact that people are thinking about this is, is a positive thing. Whether BlackBerry actually came up with you know, a viable solution, we won't know for a long time until we can test it, right? Sure. It's a code signing server. It's a code signing right. server. So the right. whole point- was thin on detail, for sure. So sure. We'll, we'll see what happens. Yeah, no, absolutely. I'm sure there's a bunch of blockchain folks trying to figure out the intersection and impact of computers that can do supercomputing and, uh, and, and, and impact on security. Ron, you, you write extensively about, in fact, you're one of the more prolific bloggers for TechCrunch or any media that I know. You, so you extensively write about companies, including my company, and you wrote about the Apple partnership. You wrote about mm -hmm. the Amazon AWS partnership, Einstein Voice, Customer 360, MuleSoft, an impact of having access to data everywhere. Um, so, so can you summarize just overall your, your, I don't know if you were at Dreamforce. I wasn't, no, I was pre yeah, And I, I was just, I had so many assignments. <laughs> I, I, I didn't, I barely saw Ray. I think I saw Ray for 15 minutes at an accidental dinner. Um, so, but, but your overall, uh, you know, uh, commentary regarding what you've been covering for folks watching. So, I mean, you know, this was an interesting dream force in that, you know, it was the first time that MuleSoft has been part of the company. And, um, you know, so I thought it was super interesting that one of the things that, you know, the company was able to do in a short time was to take the MuleSoft approach and not just 
pointed outward, but pointed inward. And that's what customer 360 is. You know, it's taking all of those, I wouldn't say disparate pieces because they're not disparate, but they're pieces, you know, that make up the Salesforce product family and, you know, putting them together in a way that really, uh, and it remains to be seen, you know, how well it work. It, again, it's, it's, it's an announcement, but this, this idea that you know the whole customer is, is really important. And I think we see it all the time. And just as a small example, I called my credit card company a few weeks ago and I talked to the bot, you know, which usually is an exercise in total frustration for me when I talk to the bot. You know, the, <laughs> the, so, you know, tell us what you're calling about, you know, so, you know, tell us what your customer number is and all of that. And then you tell it everything. And then you finally get the human on the phone and they say, tell us what you're calling about and wow. tell us what your customer number is. And I just gave that information. In this case, my credit card company actually passed the information from the bot to the CSR. And it's unusual enough that it shocked me, right? <laughs> <laughs> so we're getting there, Ron. We're getting there. <laughs> I always say that, you know, I, t I talk to Salesforce all the time about, you know, what's going on there. Yeah. And I always say, you guys create this unrealistic vision for me of what my customer experience should be like, because it's never like that. <laughs> so, so, I mean, again, if this actually works the way it's supposed to, and then you actually get to the CSR and it's, you know, a human being who has a true sense of why you're calling and you know who you represent as a customer you're somebody who is a regular customer or not this is your first time or you know you have you know you you're somebody that you know you should be paying attention to this whole idea that we have all this information in databases but what good does it do if yeah. when we when the rubber hits the road and yeah. we're meeting the customer face to face or phone to face or yeah. or chat to face whatever um, when we're having this interaction with a customer if if you're not using that data to make that a better experience, then you're failing the customer and you frustrate the customer. Right. So I think if, if they can use that and use that MuleSoft, you know, inter, integration technology to be able to pull that all together to make that vision more of a reality, then it's going to be huge for, for consumers and for the companies that use the tools, you know, however that works out. Absolutely. All right, we're going to switch. We're going to switch topics. And in between, got a programming note. Dr. Dalip Rao was like, no, my point is the entrepreneurs may need VC after AHA. Okay. Up okay. until the AHA moment, they need VC, which is a I think he actually said that during the segment. He, he said that. that. I don't want to miss either. Well, we, you know, we're, 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 we kind of sensationalized it. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking okay. about sensationalizing, <laughs> uh, two hot pies. One is Jedi contract and two, when is Amazon going to announce its new headquarters? Ooh. Okay, so I think they're kind of related, right, in a way. So um, They are, actually. <laughs> so the Jedi I wonder why. For people who don't know what it is, it's this $10 billion cloud contract. Small contracts. Small contract with the government. Yeah. Well, the Pentagon It's a $100 has, billion dollar market. Let's not forget. Yeah, so, so that's exactly what I was going to point out. So $10 billion contract over 10 years. So it's supposedly working its way towards $100 billion a year. So it's not as big as it seems, but it's, you know, for the, for the players who are well behind Amazon in the market, it's gonna represent a huge win if they can get it, right? Because it not only proves that they can get this multi-billion dollar contract, it's with the government, it's with a government agency or department that, you know, requires extremely good security. And oh, yeah. it, it should open the door to, you know, to other, um, 
other contracts in the government and with businesses that would need those same kinds of features, same kind of right. ideas. So there's a lot of maneuvering going on. The feeling amongst the vendors is that this should be a multi-vendor contract because if you think about over 10 years, how does like everybody except for Amazon, which just doesn't say anything because they're the leading vendor in, this, in the space and they're probably the leading vendor for this particular contract, although the DOD says it's wide open. But <laughs> does a multi-vendor approach make sense? I kind of think it does because over a 10 year period, like if you're working with Amazon or Azure or whoever it is, you know, there's going to be those other companies doing things and, you know, that, that innovating in ways that, you know, no single company can do on its own. So some companies do certain things better than others. So, you know, I don't know why they're, they're insisting on this one vendor approach, but they want the one throat to choke. They think it's more secure and this is what they're doing, whether, you know, we agree with it or not. And so that's out there and that's going to, the RFP closes next week and then they're going to make a choice in April of 2019. So next April. And then right, so Amazon Bala, short picks for Amazon HQ. What do you think? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I wish they saw our 10-year vision. We'd be in the running. So, <laughs> no, uh, no, uh, no comments. <laughs> no comment? All right, Ron, what do you think? Well, I mean, I think, you know, it's a double-edged sword, I think, for whoever gets it, because it's a huge, you know, it's going to be a huge influx of employees. It's going to be a huge influx of traffic. What impact is it going to have on housing, on infrastructure? you know, and how much power does it give to Amazon as a vendor? So, but who's going to get it? I think DC is in the lead, you know, I, 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 coming from Boston, I think in some ways Boston makes sense, but it's too small, I think in terms of, and the infrastructure is just too old to, to support 50,000. Wow. Doug, 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 Doug Henshin says, if you're in the DC area, you get four senators in your pocket and a major area employer straddling MDBA. <laughs> so, plus access to all the agency heads. So right. HQQMDVA shoe in, oh my God. Uh, so it sounds like Nova probably. I'm, I'm betting on either Atlanta or Raleigh-Durham. So low cost states um, balances out the fact that they really wanna move out of Seattle because Seattle's taxing them to death uh, with all these weird rules to designed to make Amazon very, very much the uh, benefactor for the city of Seattle and, and Washington state. So that's my guess. All right. Well, those are good guesses too. I mean, I like that because it's 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 a little bit outside the box thinking, right? It's, it's thinking about like and and those places are cheaper to live. They they don't have the the, the you know in terms of getting talent, it's, they don't have as much competition as they do in 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 the major centers of TC and and, and, and Boston. And so so we'll see. We'll, I mean. I got great talent. Well, we're here with Ron Miller, enterprise reporter at TechCrunch. He's also going to be at Constellations Connected Enterprise yeah. in a few weeks. You can follow him on Twitter, R-O-N underscore M-I-L-L-E-R, the one and only Ron Miller. Thank you for being on the show. Thanks for having um, me, guys. Thank you very much. Look forward to seeing you, my friend. Yeah, I'll see you in a couple of weeks. Thank you. See you. Awesome. Happy Friday. I'll tell you. Episode uh, number 125 on the books for next week. Oh, my God. 125. That's a lot of shows, Vala. Oh, my God. Ray, I tell you, you know, I, every time we have shows like this, like all three extraordinary guests, I keep thinking that you and I have a book in the making because all we got to do is summarize 
for example, the Dr. Rao's book or, or Kim's book, and there's so much great insights that guests Where's that NLP bring. engine? Where's that NLP engine? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So anyway, uh, you know, so for, uh, for next week, uh, our guests include Ken Koshenda, former principal engineer of iPhone software for Apple and author of Creative Selection, Inside Apple's Design Process During the Golden Age of Steve Jobs. Of course, all of us today. I'm, I'm reading a lot into that. That was the golden age. Where, where are we now? <laughs> <laughs> True, platinum. Uh, of course, platinum, uh, platinum. Steve Jobs passed away uh, on this day, 2011. Uh, so it's, uh, it's uh, you know, all of us have him in, in the back of our mind. And Tim, where were you? Where were you that day? I found out on Twitter. I, I know that. Uh, and I found out at home uh, in the afternoon. Uh, but I was, um, I was speaking at a conference and the conference went quiet. Oh, wow. So and then I drove your, down to during your talk during your talk during it. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Um, yeah, yeah. 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 I was driving down. I, I, I dropped by the house in Palo Alto and I dropped by the dropped by Cupertino. It's quite a scene. I mean, there was quite a memorial going out there. So yeah, it's, I, it's, I'll never it's, forget that day. It's amazing. That was seven years ago today. Um, uh, Avery a Blank, uh, speaker, impact strategist, woman's leadership expert, policy attorney, author, and a Forbes contributor. Uh, so uh, Ken Avery. And then one of my favorite guests of all time, Dion Hinchcliffe, vice president, principal analyst at Constellation Research. Dion is a prolific blogger and uh, one of the best analysts in terms of capturing incredibly complex insight into visuals. So the graphics that summarize his thesis are second to none. And so I look forward to having Diane on the show. And I'm also getting prepped to hosting an incredible business model innovation summit with Saul Kaplan and John Kaya as my guests at Constellation Connect Enterprise. And uh, it's gonna be uh, an amazing uh, panel discussion. Uh, Ray, here's my prediction. It will be your highest rated segment of the conference. <laughs> It is. And then we also have someone very special. We have the man behind House of Lies. So, oh, very cool. oh, very cool. Very cool. That is, a, that, is, that is official. I'm talking to him later today. So, oh, awesome. The awesome. one and only Marty Khan. So. He is he's <laughs> one of the smartest digital marketeers I know. So we're in, we're in for a treat. Um, we are in yes, for a treat. It's going to be an awesome show. Yeah. So, so all right, live. Yeah. If, if you haven't gotten your tickets for Constellations Connected Enterprise, October 22nd to 25th, um, please get them now. We're running out of hotel rooms. Um, and then uh, December 10th, the mother of all events. Uh, check it out. It's going to be um, out on the website soon. As two big headliners we talked about, Tim Berners-Lee, Vince Cerf, Steve Wozniak, Wendy Hall, a few other uh, hot topics. Uh, you'll check it out and uh, we'll show you more. I think the website goes live soon. It isn't live yet. So, awesome. all right. Well, hey, thanks everyone. Thanks for being on the show. Show number 124, Disrupt TV. Happy Friday, everyone. Thanks everyone. See you next week. Bye-bye.